Hello and welcome to this week's Scottish Independence podcast. This week we have some of the speeches from the Women for Independence AGM. The two speakers are Sue Lyons and Angela O'Hagan and they're both talking on the topic of the cost of living crisis and its disproportionate effect on women. The main theme of the day is the cost of living crisis. And um, somebody, uh, a man, asked me the other day, why is that your focus for your women fringe AGM? Surely it affects everybody the same. And of course, the simple answer is that's not the case. And we know, and we're going to be hearing later today, just how badly it affects women in particular. But the cost of living crisis is everywhere. And it seems to have been with us really quite a long time. Obviously, we knew that the energy prices were going to rise. We had a horrific summer of inflated fuel prices, but we're now in one of the deepest recessions we've been in decades, the highest inflation for 40 years and the highest interest rates for a similar time. Price rises are everywhere and it's the uncertainty of what's going to happen that is so unsure. On top of the big uh, fiscal black hole that was the chat of Westminster this week. It's important to acknowledge that although the economy did shrink during COVID and although public spending went through the roof in an attempt to mitigate some of the worst of COVID um, and public spending has therefore gotten out of control, it's important to realise that the fiscal black hole is not a result of that, or at least not only of that. It's a result of over 10 years of conservative rule and conservative economic policies that have gotten us in this mess. Austerity is not an inevitable outcome of a difficult economic climate. Austerity is a political choice. And therefore, that means that the poverty that ensues from austerity is also a political choice. And politicians on the whole, at least in my experience, choose to create policies that support their their core values and their support base or protect their self-interest. And most recently, that self-interest has been protecting their seats and their chances of a further re-election. That is what I believe was behind the outrage, and I'll put that in quotes as well, of the trust mini budget. I don't think it was because philosophically the Tories are opposed to rewarding the rich while shafting the rest of us. It's also, I suspect, what's behind this week's bottom statement, which appears to hit the Tory base of middle class, middle income families while protecting the most vulnerable. So I'm hoping that today's morning session busts some of those myths. But as I said, why is this an issue for women particularly? Women for Indy have a strong belief that what unites us as women is more important than what divides us. But as we move towards that inevitable battle that's to come, I think we need to know that the way to get women on our side, women who are perhaps not natural independent supporters, is to understand the difference that an independent Scotland would make to the lives of women and girls. And we know because there is reams of evidence, some of it written by our two main speakers this morning, that austerity hits women the hardest. And that's from being overrepresented in low paid, sometimes low skilled, part time and insecure labour. 
to being the largest group of single parents and for many women being unpaid carers and others um, really relying on a male partner for income, even down to whether they get their benefits or not. So it's an issue that is common caused with women. I don't know what we're going to hear today, but what I hope we're going to be hearing today is not just the size and severity of the issue, but I think it's important we do know what that is because it's not widely reported, but that there are other choices open and that there are other routes that can be taken, presumably and preferably through independence. But we turn now to our first speaker of the day, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome Sue Lyons. Sue has been a stalwart member and part of the Committee of Women for Independence for years. She is well known for her blog. During the Brexit debacle, there were only two people I read regularly to find out what was really happening about Brexit. One was Sue Lyons and the other was Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times. And I'd much rather sit down and have a beer with Sue Lyons and Fintan O'Toole any time of the day. Sue is now in, is, is now um, just started a few weeks ago, a PhD in Glasgow focusing on rural poverty, and that's her area of expertise. So can I please ask you to give, put your mics on so we can all hear you applaud, a warm welcome to Sue Lyons for the first speech of the morning. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you very much. And thank you for asking me to do this. Um, as Maggie said, it's 10 years since Women for Independence started. I was remembering recently the feelings that I had after being scooped up into what was then a Google group of what I thought were some seriously impressive women. Later, I walked into a kitchen in a town I'd never been to to meet women I didn't know and had never met, wondering what on earth I was doing there. Those early days of what would become Women for Independence were some of the most exciting, enlightening and sisterly of my whole life. I found my voice and it was a socialist feminist voice. Women for Independence changed the independence debate. Those of us in that kitchen elbowed ourselves into hustings, demanded a space on the couches of the late night political shows, dared the men to talk over us and put them firmly in their place when they did. After the devastation of the referendum in 2014, I thought it was over. I thought it was finished. And yet somehow it wasn't. There was a determination to continue to work, to work as if we were in the early days of a better nation, that nation so many of us had dreamt of. And we have, as a group of national committee members and as local groups around Scotland, Women for Indy members have done exactly that by the bucket load. We've campaigned on national issues, women's justice, baby boxes, poverty and local issues, hospital closures, school issues, local campaigns where women's voices were desperately needed and made the difference. Many of us have put ourselves forward for political office, stood for selection and some have been elected to Westminster and to Holyrood. It's always gratifying to see our sisters on the national stage. Yet the biggest thrill for me is to see so many of you sitting in council chambers, in community councils, on parent councils, working for your people and your communities, supporting each other, being the voice that was so completely missing prior to the last referendum. And yet, despite all this, working as if we're in the early days of a better nation is really tough when we aren't. In the wake of Brexit and now facing a cost of living crisis that will see poverty rise to levels many of us have never seen in our lifetimes, it's really tough to remain optimistic and determined. 
Being part of the UK today is like finding ourselves in a strange, unfamiliar place where no matter how hard we look for it, we can't find the way out. It's tempting to step back and think it's too hard. It's tempting to think we'll never get a second referendum. And if we do, then there's no way we can win with the media, the might of the British establishment against us and the misery that yet another Tory prime minister brings along with his tea chests and packing cases into 10 Downing Street. And yet independence is more important than ever. As we look around us at the impact of the hideous policies of this ever increasingly hideous government, more and more it's becoming clear that independence is the tool we need to do things better. Being part of this union prevents Scotland being the better nation that we've tried so hard to make, even with one hand tied behind our back. In the eight years since the first Indy referendum, women have been at the sharp end of the UK's war on the sick, the poor, those on benefits, immigrants and refugees. Poverty is ravaging our towns and our sisters' lives. Food banks have become well-kent site in our towns. We're seeing charities, churches, ordinary people opening their spaces so people can keep warm, charge their phones, have a hot drink, get something to eat. We're seeing school uniform banks, holiday food programmes. This is our post-Brexit union in 2022. Today, there will be women who want to join this call but can't afford the internet access to do so. On this call, there'll be women who can't afford to pay their energy bills. There'll be women who do not know how they will make it to the end of the month. There will be women who don't know how they feed their children. Maggie said poverty is a political choice and she's right. We see that every day. The UK government has employed deliberate policies designed to make people poorer. The rape clause, the benefit cap, the punitive welfare policies designed to humiliate and denigrate people already struggling. Clearest example of this for me was the removal of the £20 universal credit uplift. The UK government had the choice to do something different, but they didn't. They chose to take £20 a week off some of the poorest people in our society. That was a choice. They spent billions on dodgy PPE. They give tax breaks to global companies that make billions in profits. And yet they take £20 a week from the women struggling to feed their bairns. How dare they? Universal credit is a stick to beat the poor with. And they turned their smug, self-satisfied faces away and made it harder for women to feed their children and heat their homes. What kinds of people make those choices? And the autumn statement isn't really any better. They've told us that hard choices have to be made. We're all going to have to tighten our belts. We're all going to have to take difficult decisions. Well, the people telling us that aren't the ones that are taking the hard decisions not to have the tea tonight so the kids can't eat. They aren't the ones taking the hard decisions not to turn the heating on. In fact, many of those making the decisions about whether to allow people to heat or eat have their energy bills paid through expenses. So let's see this for what it is, sisters. It's us that are making the hard decisions. It's you and me and people like us, mostly women, who are having to decide to cut back on food, on car use, on heating our homes and using hot water. Not this Tory government. I bet Rishi Sunak's never gone to bed at four o'clock because it's dark, it's cold and you haven't got any bloody gas. I bet he and all his cabinet have never had to sit underneath the window so the milkman can't see you because you haven't any money to pay him. I bet they've never, ever cut up an old fleece to use as a sanitary towel or washed in cold water because they can't afford to put the immersion heater on. The cost of living crisis means that we're seeing these things everywhere we look. I'm speaking to you from here in the Highlands and it, it's okay, the weather's okay today. 
where we have one of the highest levels of fuel poverty in the country, despite producing enough energy right here to meet our own use and more. There are sisters sitting in Sutherland in Russia in Cavemess who can't afford to put their heating on and yet look out of their windows at wind farms on our hills. Look out over the North Sea to oil and gas rigs and offshore wind farms and yet pay some of the highest prices for their fuels. The government says they're helping, but £67 a month won't heat houses in remote areas where wind-driven rain, poor quality housing and no access to mains gas means that the absolutely not an energy price cap doesn't apply and is of no help. The price of smokeless fuel, which we use to heat our house, has risen from £10 a 25 kilogram bag in March to 16 pounds a bag today. The price of wood has similarly risen. In the middle of December, when it's not been, it's not as unseasonably warm as it's been, we can go through two bags of smokeless a week on top of our electricity. The electricity we have to use to heat our rooms in the morning when the fire's not been lit. The electricity that powers our cooker to cook our food, helps to dry our clothes and keeps the damp at bay. Poverty is everywhere we look. In our cities, it's more visible perhaps, but it exists here in rural and remote Scotland too, and it's no less damaging. Research I carried out in 2019 looked at the link between rural poverty, rural poverty and levels of mental well-being, and showed through some complicated maths that I learned specially, that people living in rural poverty have the lowest levels of mental well-being. Unsurprisingly, the issues are similar, but the effect is perhaps different. In a recent Poverty Week event, which looked at some research being done by Glasgow University into women in multiple low-paid employment, there were discussions around how women are cutting back by buying cheaper food and cutting back on car use to make ends meet. It was really interesting, but I made the point that women in rural and remote areas often don't have that choice. If one of your jobs is in a hotel in Laird and one in a care home in Bonner Bridge, then you can't cut down on your car use. Petrol's more expensive often in rural areas too. Access to affordable food is difficult when the only shop you have nearby is a local shop. And that's not just about price. I can go to Aldi and buy instant noodles at 32p a pack. Kids love them for their lunches. But I don't have that choice if I can't get to a supermarket. In our local co-op, they don't have budget noodles. They have bachelor super noodles at 90p. Tesco sell milk at 165 and co-op at 185. The cheapest pads I can buy at our local co-op are £2.20. The same pads are 95p in Tesco's. Rural life brings added costs and added stigma. I spoke to one woman who told me when she went to a local shop to buy electricity, the kind, well-meaning cashier would comment on what she bought every time. Oh, only £3 today, love. Are you struggling? It must be really hard. Ooh, 20 pounds today. You flushed this week. It made her feel scrutinised and shamed and left her isolated and depressed. Here in rural Scotland, our housing costs more. It's a poorer quality and is more susceptible to the type of weather we have. But houses are designed to be heated properly. And when they aren't, mould can form, damaging health and the building. After the devastating news of the death of a wee boy, Awabishak, as a result of mould in his housing association home in Rochdale, a place I know well where I grew up and lived before moving to Scotland, we saw people on social media blame his parents for his death. They should have just wiped the mould away. They should have done better. They should have just kept their heating on. What use is it telling people to keep their homes heated when they can't afford to turn on their electricity or their gas? What use is it going to service a boiler when people have no credit on their gas meters? 
The individualization of poverty overlooks the structural causes and gives this UK government a free pass to get away with doing what they're doing just now. Nothing. Poor governance, poor housing, racism, all factors in the death of a beloved and beautiful child. And yet we hear the UK government express regret, but they don't take any action because ultimately they don't care. They too think that poverty is an individual failing. We hear this so much these days. We dice on the inside of our windows when I was a kid and we just piled coats up and it didn't do me any harm. Just put another jumper on. These are the foods you can eat if you just scrape the mould off. I can't even get over that article in the Express. There's no care and compassion from this government. Never big on these in the first place. They were dumped, tipped into the pile of Brexit shittiness thrown into the sea to lighten Britain's load as she set sail for the sunlit sunlit uplands of post-Brexit growth, growth, growth. Except there's no sunlit uplands if you're poor, just grinding greyness and empty cupboards. Nothing in the autumn statement will change that. Women will remain, as I heard said recently, the shock absorbers of poverty. The UK government announced 600,000 more people will be encouraged back into work from universal credit. More of them will be asked to work with a work coach. Make no mistake, sisters, this will target women, lone parents, carers. They'll be subjected to the assault course that is universal credit, a system designed to kick you every step of the way. They'll be required to work more or face sanctions with no corresponding increase in childcare provision or caring support. How will women do that? The UK has the second most expensive childcare costs in the world, according to the OECD. And women, poor women, find their choices reduced as a result of that. The sanctions that will follow on from this expansion of bullying condescension will leave people without money, without food, heating and dignity. They punish the already struggling. And Jeremy Hunt is promising more of that. This is Scotland as part of the union in 2022. What can we do about it? Well, there's some being done. As much as Westminster deliberately chooses policies to further degrade and stigmatise people in poverty, the Scottish Government has tried to mitigate some of that pain and anguish. It's gratifying to see the child payment increased and rolled out to under-16s. I'm thankful to see free school meals for all primary children, removing stigma of the free dinner tickets I remember from my youth. And free childcare would have helped me when twice in my life I've had to give up my work because childcare was either unaffordable or particularly when living in Caithness, unavailable or completely unworkable. I'm personally pleased to see the Scottish Government approach to social security instigated by our own Jean Freeman. I call for its devolution in the lead up to the Smith Commission and having taken part in some of the experience panels and development work through my role with the Poverty Alliance and Spirit Advocacy, I've been really pleased to see the, the de- development of that and yet it's not enough if you read the report by the poverty alliance and the scottish women's budget group which came out this week you would have seen how women internalize and blame themselves for the poverty and hardship that they experience women are more likely to be poor have low levels of savings if any at all less wealth and twice as likely as men to rely on the social security system parenting Caring responsibilities limit the ability of women to take on more paid work, leaving many of us struggling to stay afloat in the face of rising costs and inadequate social security payments. There remains much to be done. We saw from the Scottish Social Attitudes Survey that 68% of people felt that income should be redistributed, redistributed even 
from the wealthy to the poorer. 64% were happy to pay more tax in order for more money to be spent on health education and crucially social welfare. So in Scotland, the will is there. We know we need more policies like this, and it appears that we want more policies like this, but they cannot come without independence. The Scottish government is nudging us in the right direction, but when purse strings are tightened by Westminster, then that nudging becomes more difficult and progressive steps to fundamentally move Scotland away from the neoliberal me, me, me society that the Tories have nurtured since Thatcher become harder and smaller. The Scottish Government has thankfully prioritised the spending commitments they made for people, for the child payment, for mitigating the policies that the UK Government foists on us, because remember, we have to mitigate them. We have to find the money to meet the bills of the bedroom tax, to ensure that people are paid a living wage, to remove the impact of the disgusting rape clause. These are all helpful to women, but there is more that can be done, and our woman manifesto sets out what we want the Scottish Government to do across a whole range of issues. Despite this, the catastrophic fallout from this Tory government leaves us failing cuts to public services, struggling to offer the pay rises that people rightly want and deserve. Cuts to public services have the greatest impact on people living in poverty, on women. This, consist, this constant battle to spend only what the gov UK government allows Scotland to spend is damaging to our society and to people here in Scotland. Our inability to borrow to fund anything other than some capital projects is a barrier to women's equality in Scotland today. There's a lot of back slapping from Jeremy and his mates and suggestions that this government is keeping the triple lock and uprating benefits in line with inflation. But they've kept the benefit cap. They haven't increased the local housing allowance. And that means more of people's money will go on rent. They've reduced the support they've put into the fuel cap. Cold comfort for us all. That benefit uprating of 10% will not come until April, and it's already too little. Today, inflation is at 11.1%, with some forecasts suggesting it will reach 14%. What helped the 10% uprating then? And what are people expected to do over the winter? Food and fuel are driving inflation. The price of everyday staples hitting our pockets. Petrol, electricity, bread, butter. But you know, like they say, put another sweater on and scrape that mould off the bread. So despite the child payment, despite the mitigation of the worst of UK policies, Scotland cannot do something different without the full powers of an independent country. And so we trim a bit here, cut a bit here in order to try and help those who need it most, to try to help people keep warm and eat, to try and find pay rises for nurses, teachers, railway workers, overworked and carrying the weight of Brexit and the impact of COVID. Scotland does not have the control of the economic levers to change the society we live in. Talking about economics is challenging. There seem to be as many views on whether we need to raise taxes and cut spending as there are those that say we should cut taxes and raise spending. Experts here, there and everywhere. Taxi drivers in Glasgow, those experts at everything, where I've been staying during the last few weeks, have variously told me that we can't stand on our own two feet without holding the hands of the great British economy. But we can't be expect to be a success without the roar of Britannia behind us. I say that's nonsense. Look around us, look at the natural resources, look at the tourism, the food and drink, the innovation we have in Scotland, ripped out of Europe against the express, express will of the Scottish people. These things have been damaged precisely because of the self-indulgent roar of right-wing Britannia. 
I like to think of more of a grip on economics now than I did eight years ago when I blogged about it for National Collective. But even with the degrees I've achieved since 2012, I can still find only one unassailable truth about the economy in an independent Scotland. And that is that in an independent Scotland, the revenue raised in and by Scotland will be spent by Scottish government on the priorities decided by the people of Scotland at the ballot box. That's it. That does not happen now. And women are the poorer for it, literally. This idea we can only survive because of the largesse of the UK government is not only nonsense, it's dangerous. The UK government have done nothing to prevent people dying from cold and hunger this winter. They've done nothing to prevent hardship and poverty. And they've done nothing that will improve the lives of the most vulnerable, the most isolated and the most desperate. Just like with COVID-19, they're all right, Jack, and fuck the rest of us. Make no mistake, people will die as a result. Tied as we are to Westminster at the hands of a government that have evidence that they don't value the human condition through their policies on refugees, their welfare policies, their complete disregard for COVID regulations that they devised, we've seen the Scottish government at least try to improve things for people at the sharp end. And those of us who are thankful for that say we prayer and watch as the opposition parties in Holyrood stand up and demand that our government follow whatever ghastly policy being bandaged about by the UK government and find money from nothing whilst their bosses in Westminster laugh in our faces week in and week out. I hear people who say, but Labour might win and things will be different then, but will they? Will they bring in a more compassionate and general social security system? There's no sign that they're thinking about that. Will they take us back into the EU, or at the very least, the single market and freedom of movement, helping particularly our rural economies struggling to find nurses, hotel staff and care workers? Absolutely not. Freedom of movement is gone and not coming back, Keir Starmer said, simply ignoring the needs Scotland has for growing our population. Will they fundamentally tackle the structural issues which see women drowning under the weight of poverty and inequality? I doubt it. Theirs is the voice of individualism. It is the voice of conditionality and punitive social security rules. The Labour leadership speaks to England. But just imagine, imagine an independent Scotland where Labour and Conservative parties can reflect the priorities of Scotland. We need them. Imagine a right of centre party, Conservatives, without the need to second guess what their laughing stock of a leadership are going to mess up this week. What excruciating U-turn Douglas Ross is going to have to complete. We would have infinitely better opposition parties and we need that for a functioning democracy. This is not about excluding them. It's about bringing them with us. It's about changing our opposition parties so that they can effectively hold governments to account. Independence will be good for both of those parties. What a shame they can't see that. So as we move towards a second independence referendum, the voices of women will be vital in bringing people with us. We're often the people that our communities trust, sitting in councils, community organisations, parent councils. We should be where women come for answers. I remember holding the first Highland meeting of Women for Independence. It was a cold, rainy, dark Tuesday night. And I'd organised a meeting in a coffee shop with Olivia Hamilton, who's sadly no longer with us. We expected to get a couple of people and a dog, probably men at that. We had 30 women join us. We talked, laughed, learned things. And at the end of it, one of the women said to me, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. Women for Independence are here for all those women, for all the Marys who have nowhere to go for their answers. 
The values of sisterhood, creating a safe space where women's voices can be heard and raised continues to be important. Fundamentally, women are the backbone of our society and we will be the backbone of an independent Scotland, designing its laws, developing its policies and demanding equality. Independence is only the beginning, sisters. Bring it on. Sue, thank you so much. That was incredible. I've had tears. I've smiled with connection. <laughs> I've had shivers down my spine during all of that. And, and the, all the issues that you highlight, those of us who are elected members in local authorities are dealing with those things every day. Um, when people come to us because they're struggling and it, it's the way you channel your anger about this in the most articulate, sensitive and compassionate way just blows my mind. Thank you so much. It's now my absolute joy to introduce Angela O'Hagan as our next keynote speaker. I first met Angela at a Women for Indie event in uh, in Edinburgh, in a church, which seemed quite apt at the time, actually. And Angela gave us the foundation of our economics section of our Women Manifesto. She is such an expert on our subject. She had us in tears as well. I've followed her on social media ever since. I've been to online training with the Scottish Women's Budget Group. I've joined SWBG up with the Improvement Service, which delivers training to elected members and local authority officers because it's such an important area of work. But let me give you some background to Angela, and I've blatantly lifted this from the internet. So Angela is a long-standing member of the Scottish Women's Budget Group and is also a trustee. She's also a member of the UK Women's Budget Group and on the Management Committee there too. She was a commissioner on the Commission on a Gender Equal Economy and is currently the independent chair of the Scottish Government Equality and Budgets Advisory Group. She's a senior academic in equalities and public policy at Glasgow Caledonian University and a published author on gender budgeting in Scotland. Um, UK and internationally, and is Deputy Director of the Wise Centre for Economic Justice at Glasgow Cali. Angela's way of describing how women are negatively impacted by budget decisions and what we can do to address that will stay with you, I have absolutely no doubt. So without any further ado, please warmly welcome Angela O'Hagan. It's a joy to have you today, Angela. Thank you for coming along. Thank you very, very much. I'm absolutely delighted to be back at Women for India. It's it's a while since I've I've been around um, these parts, as we say. Struggling to speak actually after Sue, that was so powerful and so beautifully, beautifully articulated. You also reminded me, Sue, of our common history. Um, Scottish Women's Budget Group started around a few kitchen tables as well. <laughs> and I think we should probably all get together and write a history of you know, women's activism um, in the devolution era and just call it, you know, from something. A kitchen table would need to be in the, in the title. I'm also really pleased to say that the Scottish Women's Budget Group is stronger than ever. Um, we have 
through support from our sisters at the UK Women's Budget Group and then international funding secured some seed money that then has allowed us to start to employ staff for the first time. And that fantastic staff team led by Sarah Cowan has gone from strength to strength, bringing in funding to secure the, the training that, that Jules has talked about um, and the work. There's a current project with, um, with local councils across Scotland. And we've also been recruiting mentors um, to support um, the development of practice around gender budgeting and gender analysis in policy and budgets at, at local level. So it's, it's unrecognisable. I mean, I always used to say that you know we survived on the voluntary effort and goodwill of of our members and the collective intelligence. And I don't just mean intellectual capacity, but that women in the Scottish Women's Budget Group worked across all sorts of different organisations. And so we're bringing a, a huge richness of, of policy insight. But we financially survived by, you know, scrabbling down the back of the couch and finding the odd bit of money here and there um, to keep going. But we kept going through goodwill. And um, it's in some ways very nice that the goodwill can be and that the energy that that requires um, can be channeled differently. I suppose from the outside as well, some folk might look at me and say, she's still doing the same thing she was doing 20 years ago. <laughs> And sometimes I think I mustn't be doing it very well because we still don't have gender budgeting in Scotland. The Scottish government still doesn't do gender analysis of its public finance decisions um, in the way that we would want to see. But we keep plugging away at it. And um, I've just been renewed as chair of what's now the Equality and Human Rights Budgets Advisory Group. And that's another challenge. Does that mean further dilution of the focus on gender? Is it a pragmatic approach to where the wind is blowing and the... The opportunity to ensure that gender is integrated into the calls for incorporation around human rights. We can discuss that and I'm sure we will discuss that in, on many occasions. So basically, I mean, what I was going to do is, is not talk in detail on, in any detail on the, the, the depth or, or give a, a barrage of, of stats and Sue has, has covered that beautifully without a barrage of stats, because, partly because it's just so grim. It's just so grim to think about the, the stats. But what I was going to do um, is to get us to think about this is a scandal. You know, It is a crisis on multiple levels, but it's a political scandal because it's a series of political choices that have been taken deliberately, that have been encouraged and allowed to happen um, without any real re regard. And that we see the, the deliberate nature of this and so many of the behaviours that have been unchecked and unchallenged over COVID, but prior to that, you know, the character of Westminster in the last um, several years has has been one of of unfettered you know, privilege and disregard. And there we are. I'm off script already, and and it's only um, my first opening comments. But that's I think what makes it a scandal. What we're talking about are mul multiple crises here. Really, we have the emergence and ongoing pandemic, and the emergence from the lockdown and shutdown elements of pandemic. But we still are in economic recovery. We're still in health recovery. We're still experiencing COVID and the overloading um, of the NHS. The fragmentation of which is is. Um, overwhelming um, for those who work in the system and those who are trying to access the system. It, it's that fragmentation that creates the conditions whereby people are exhausted, um, are overwrought and, and over, um, overrung really in, in what they're trying to achieve. And the reality of so many people 
and as Sue has said, and that we're focusing on today, that reality is so so much worse and so different um, for for women. So I'll touch briefly on that reality, uh, but I want us to look at, at some of the policy demands that are coming out of women's organisations and other civil society organisations, and to look at what actions for change are possible. And what I'd like us to think about is that these multiple actions and that we focus on these multiple calls from civil society organisations, from feminist organisations, that's part of movement building. There is strength here in, in these multiple calls. So much overlap between what Scottish Women's Budget Group, UK Women's Budget Group, Engender, One Parent Family Scotland, Joseph Rowntree, and of course, Women for Indy, alongside the, the National Advisory Council on Women and Girls. So many organisations all saying the same things. And I think, as I say, there's real power in that to coalesce around and to use the opportunities and to not be pushed back by some of the really quite vacuous um, politicking we hear from Scottish ministers as well as, as um, the more aggressive and disregarding, of course, of, of the, the Westminster ministers. And as Sue has said, these are political choices. We're facing multiple crises. We have COVID, we have COVID recovery, we have economic recovery and now economic recession. We have crises of, of income, um, that income from wages and wage stagnation, low wages, the persistence of low wages, particularly in the areas where women predominate. Crisis of savings and pension, again, worst experienced by women for all the reasons that have been very well rehearsed and established over many years in relation to women's relationship with the, the labour market and paid work and the relationship and the enduring relationship between women's paid employment and women's unpaid work. Care and household labour, as Engender phrase it in their most recent report on the cost of living, um, care and household labour continue to characterise the economic structures um, which produce and reproduce the conditions that keep women poor, that make women poor and keep women poor, um, and that keep women in the choices, we're told, of you know, part-time working, but which don't really hold up anymore. As we see a labour market that has become increasingly fragmented, the character of the labour market increasingly insecure, precarious, um, and while the, the narratives and discourse of you know, um, high, um, high regard, high level um, HR commitments, you know, lots of warm words again from employers um, about how valuable um, their employees are. And I don't know about you, but I work for an organisation that talks a lot about its values. We hear a lot of talk about organisational values across the piece. But those values in many organisations uh, only apply until you know you want to change a shift or you miss a shift and uh, you're out the door. So Engender, in their most recent report, have concentrated um, some attention on these issues, as have the UK Women's Budget Group, looking at wages um, and the need for wages uplift across the public sector, given again that women predominate in the public sector, and urgent measures around social security at the UK level and um, for us in Scotland. We're often told and we hear constantly from, from the UK um, government um, the the cause of all our problems is the war in Ukraine and the international energy crisis. The cause of, of so I'm not disputing that there are geopolitical dimensions to the energy crisis um, and that we have a global energy crisis here. But again, we have a series of, 
of decisions, political and economic decisions here that could have been completely different decisions. There have been decisions that have been made to maximise profit, to secure some um, and also to secure um, some territorial um, security for those in, in Central Europe and elsewhere. But we've seen a multiple or again a collision of some of these, these political choices. Why have amongst these um, geopolitical choices has there not been action on the multiple UN commitments around financing for development? And I don't mean just in loss and damages, I mean thinking back to the Addis Ababa Agreement of 2015, where there was meant to be concerted international effort on tax and mobilising around tax evasion, a principle requirement of the International Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is that states' parties secure the maximum of available resources for the progressive realisation of rights. So tax evasion, tax avoidance and windfall taxes, taxing gross obscene levels of profit that outstrip the GDP almost of some individual nations um, or certainly smaller states is politically, at least for me, um, un unconscionable and unpalatable. Um, and these are part of the geopolitical dimensions that are contributing to the scandal of, of cost of living. And the collateral damage in all of this are women, especially poorer women. And so use the phrase shock absorbers, which we see across so many um, reports, um, testimonies and statements from, from women around the world. I was with colleagues from South Africa through the week and um, they were using exactly this, this phrase. As my lovely, lovely colleague Sarah Marie Hall talks about, she was taking issue with the, the press as well over the summer talking about the cost of living crisis. And she, when she'd used the phrase cost of living scandal, she was kind of airbrushed out a little bit. So fair play to, to Sarah Marie. She pushed back hard on that, saying it is a scandal and we need to keep talking about it as a scandal. And as we've heard, austerity is a political choice. We know austerity is a political choice, but it is a, it is a deeply gendered, classed and racialized process because that's who experiences engender uh, austerity the most. And you can read more about um, Sarah Marie's views on some of this in the blog. I saw a statistic through the week and I couldn't find it again ahead of today. We've known for a while, it was 2021, that we were first hearing about there being more food banks than McDonald's. And we need to avoid that becoming almost like a catchphrase. But I saw through the week something that said there was more food banks, not just than McDonald's, um, but now than Greg's. Now, I was talking about this with students yesterday. Glasgow Caledonian is at the back of Buchanan Street bus station, as you know. And um, so from, from the university down to Central Station, there's at least four Greggs. Kind of made us trying to get students to think about this. Many students, but particularly many students at organisations like GCU are very well aware um, of, of what's going on. It's their reality too. The realities really are these unbearable realities where women in the Joseph Rowntree Foundation report, and what I think is interesting as well about these reports is, is the, the methods, that there's a lot of diary use going on, a lot of testimony, a lot of spending time with women, which is, is really, really important and makes this evidence so much more powerful. We're not sitting combing through um, the statistics and producing dry statistical reports. Um, these are women's real life experience. And if politicians aren't going to listen to that, then I'm not sure really what, what we have left. Where are they? What are they going to listen to? But in the, the Joseph Rowntree report earlier, one woman talked about it's not the cost of living, um, it's the cost of surviving. And that was, um, sorry, not in the report. That's what she said at the launch of the report. The Scottish Women's Budget Group and Poverty Alliance report out this week 
um, again, using diaries and, and direct testimony with women, where one of the women, her comment is used in the title of the report, it's hard work being poor. And as this report highlights that specific groups of women are particularly struggling. Asylum seeking women are experiencing increasing food insecurity along with many other women, but have a particular context there um, so long as they have no recourse to public funds. I, I just can't really, again, get my head around that, but that's a, a permissible act of, of public policy. Women with caring responsibilities are struggling to afford essential items and lone parents are facing further pressure supporting households financially. And um, as we've heard as well, women in multiple low paid employment are experiencing increasing levels of, of financial hardship. Women with multiple jobs, some paying as low as £2 an hour, delivery and takeaway drivers over a weekend being paid £2 an hour. The precarity um, is is immense, but the disregard for human labour, the disregard for human value in the, the labour market that is emerging and that is being allowed to emerge. And when we hear from Westminster the intention to further roll back on the unnecessary regulation of the labour market, it is absolutely chilling. And what we see across the Scottish Women's Budget Group in gender, Joseph Rowntree, One Parent Families, Poverty Alliance, UK Women's Budget Group, Resolution Foundation, I mean, we are drowning in the evidence here that of the choices on heating and eating, feeding children or going without. The reproductive health choices that are highlighted in the Scottish Women's Budget Group report are incredibly powerful, where women are sticking with, with contraception and different forms of contraception because of the cost of menstrual products, because of the cost of formula, women breastfeeding, not through choice, but through financial necessity, women not having subsequent children because of the cost of, of having further children, because of the costs all around them, because of debt and anxiety around debt repayment and debt, further debt accumulation in order to meet everyday costs. Now, going ahead to what one of my students um, referred to yesterday when, when he said, I've stopped watching the news because the forthcoming winter, the way it's reported, it feels to me like Armageddon. Transport, Sue's talked about rural, remote and rural transport, which is a huge issue, and the unaffordability and unreliability of transport um, across Scotland. And again, the privatised profits um, that are subsidised by public finance, again, is unconscionable and is a model that surely um, we have responses to in Scotland now, never mind waiting for independence. The worry and anxiety um, about the future for so many women has been well documented um, over the last year or so. That anxiety generated from lockdown and shutdown in COVID, when women again um, bore the brunt. Reserve army of labour um, came into full force again during lockdown and shutdown as care services closed, care services and care packages were withdrawn and as so many sectors um, closed down, women felt themselves or found themselves rather again um, in the front line in all senses, frontline workers, key workers, carers, the carers that we clapped for, the carers that we were asked to clap for, those same carers who were having their wages reduced at the time, those same carers who had no PPE at the time, but people clapping for them on the doorstep would make them feel so much better. So what's happening? Um, the multiple calls for action across all of these reports, all of these ways in which women's voices are being encouraged um, to be heard and are being captured and amplified. Women aren't asking for the moon, they're asking for an adequate income. 
and adequate income through a caring social security system that addresses the inhumanity of no recourse to public funds, that addresses the inhumanity and loss of dignity for asylum seekers, the expectations, the enduring expectations um, that carers will continue to care without adequate income and adequate support, and the low-paid workers who have multiple low-paid jobs in precarious, fragmented labour market. Women asking for investment in preventative public services. We've seen repeatedly analysis from the UK Women's Budget Group and members of the UK Women's Budget Group and Scottish Women's Budget Group will be producing statistics and data analysis for Scotland on this in the next few weeks. Over the piece, over the last few years, Jerome de Hinao and Sue Himmelweit of the UK Women's Budget Group have run a number of exercises looking at investment in, in social care, investment in care um, as a percentage of, of GDP, of gross domestic product. And repeatedly, their studies have shown across multiple OECD countries that investment in care produces significantly higher returns on that investment than investment in any other capital projects. So for 2% investment of GDP in the UK, the return on investment would be 2.7, nearly three times as high as investment in any other area. But yet, and I'll come back to this in a minute, when it comes to looking at our economic strategy in Scotland under the current government, care isn't there. So what women are asking for is investment in preventative public services, in services that mean that people don't fall through the safety nets. All those safety nets that are there in international human rights legislation, in domestic legislation and in Scottish legislation, and we are still hearing about the kinds of poverty, the kinds of anxiety um, and poverty-induced anxiety that we are, the housing conditions that we've heard about from, from Sue and, and all around us at, at the moment. And women are asking for investment in support and advice services for debt management, income maximisation and stigma-free advice. That stigma comes up every time we talk about this and was, was so powerfully spoken about in Sue's earlier, earlier comments, that scrutiny and that entitlement of people to comment on other people's lives. Basically, what women are asking for is to just have enough money in their pockets to meet, to meet um, their needs. And so across all these reports, there's recommendations for the UK and Scottish governments, for the Scottish government, for the Department of Work and Pensions, for Social Security Scotland, for the NHS and local authorities in Scotland. Um, and we can look at some of them. And in your own manifesto for independence, um, Women for India are seeking whole system change, applying a gendered lens to all that you do to create a gender just inclusive society um, now and into an independent Scotland across five really key and clear areas, human rights, health and well-being, economy, food, environment and immigration. So the incorporation bill in relation to human rights that's meant to be that will bring in um, the Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women the International Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Um, and we're pushing hard for that to include human rights budgeting. Um, and there's already the precedent in the Children's Rights Bill that was that brought in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child um, has a requirement around children's rights budgeting. That bill is due to come forward early in 2023. So there's need for us to keep an eye on that, to maintain scrutiny and pressure on that bill, delivering what it is that we want to see and what you as Women for India want to see and have set out so clearly in your Women Manifesto. On the economy, um, we need to see changes in the tax regime, 
investment in social infrastructure and the provision of care and changes across social security and recognising social security as about social protection and basic entitlements to dignity, respect and autonomy. And that fits again with, with health claims and, and demands across health and wellbeing, a social security system um, that does protect people, that does secure freedom from harm, from want, um, and does provide, ensure um, a basic um, standard of living, an adequate standard of living. The National Care Service, we need to keep an eye on the funding there. Um, the government has been very, Scottish government has been very cagey. The National Care Service bill that was introduced is a framework bill. So there's, there's not a lot of detail there. So things are moving around in the background. The financial memorandum of understanding was, was again very vague. There's a lot of cogs and levers to be pulled here around the National Care Service, around funding at local government level, funding at national government level, the interplay between health and social care funding. I agree, I accept that. There's a lot of complexity here, but there's also a lot of huge hinterland of direction, of analysis, of um, clarity of demand as to, to what's needed in relation to social care and working with users and recipients and providers of social care, we should be able to work through a National Care Service for Scotland that delivers the range of need and demand um, to meet people's needs. The Cost of Living um, Scotland Bill, tenants, uh, the Tenant Protection Bill has also come in. So again, one to watch in terms of do those commitments follow through and some where some of the money goes in terms of, of um, housing. We need to see more action there around um, local government um, and other um, public services, looking at ways of delaying and mitigating, reducing or eliminating um, individual household debt. Taxation, there's a lot to do on taxation. Wealth tax was mentioned in the SNP's um, Commission on Fairness and Social Justice, which I was a member of, a non-party member of, um, but which kind of snuck out in its stocking feet, which was really annoying because it was an awful lot of work and an awful lot of good thinking went into that commission. And it hasn't, I haven't really had any sense of, of it having had much purchase across um, thinking. But there was some a wee bit of attention around around wealth tax in there. Some recent briefings from the New Economics Foundation um, talk about a lot of actions that can be taken um, around around wealth taxes. The idea of 1% annual tax on net wealth, which would raise 35 billion, comes not from the, uh, the New Economics Foundation or the Tax Justice Network or the UK Women's Budget Group or other feminist organisations. It comes from the Financial Times. The Financial Times, uh, Martin Sandbu of the Financial Times recommended a 1% annual tax on net wealth. In contrast to Mr Hunt's defence of not taxing the wealthiest because it wouldn't be right and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be possible or effective to um, levy a lot of tax from, from high earners, high wealth owners. There's also proposals from the Tax Justice Network that tax income from wealth should be taxed in the same way as income tax. We currently don't have those taxpayers in Scotland. We don't tax um, dividends and um, savings and assets. We tax income. But taxing income from wealth at the same level of income would raise $14 billion. Introducing national insurance on investment income would raise almost $9 billion, So that might offset some of the PPE contracts or some of the PPE contracts that resulted in the materials having to be burned because they weren't um, of the adequate specification. Other ideas on 1% on tax on assets over 10 million, that would immediately raise 10 billion. 
and ending the inheritance tax loopholes. Windfall energy taxes on energy firms um, might do something about the nine billion in profits um, that we've seen from some of the energy companies in the last wee while. Increases in tax benefits um, and scrapping the rate clause and the two child cap and benefit freeze have to be have to go without saying, but we do have to keep saying it. Um, final actions for change that we're seeing from across um, Scottish Women's Budget Group and Gender, the National Advisory Council on Women and Girls, to keep pushing for intersectional gender budgeting in the Scottish budget process. We need to see an upgrading with Social Security in line with inflation, which we have seen, but as inflation continues to increase, and while wages have increased uh, or more than in recent decades, but the upgrading, uh, but inflation has eaten, eaten into that already. Um, calls for a boost in the Social Welfare Fund, the Human Rights Bill to incorporate CEDAW, again, common calls across feminist organisations in Scotland. Similarly, calls for addressing public sector wages and in line with inflation rises. The childcare provision, we need to see the 1140 hours implemented um, and shifting gear up towards that 50 hours a, a week that has been a long-standing demand of One Parent Family Scotland and the National Advisory Council. And for us all, the busy work, the hard work, the unpaid um, scrutiny and monitoring of all of these warm words um, that aren't going to keep people warm this winter. Scottish Government has moved and, up, and uh, with the uplift of the child payment, the winter heating allowance um, has been introduced just in the, the EBR and the Fuel and Security Fund and the child bridging payments. Again, responding to um, demands from One Parent Family Scotland, Joseph Rowntree and many other organisations. However, we need to keep an eye on National Care Service funding, where that money is going to come from, where it's going to go and make sure and keep pressing for participative and participatory deliberative processes there that engage people who are in receipt of and providing care. Watch out for the weasel words of efficiencies. Um, that was the, the pre-budget scrutiny round uh, over the summer. The Scottish Parliament committees were all asking questions about efficiencies, as though that's the only means of realigning and re reorientating, redistributing public finances through further cuts, rather than shifting across budgets and making much more effective and aligned use of public finance that is available, and also addressing the income side on the revenue side, how different forms of revenue might be, be raised. And we need to keep an eye on these efficiencies insofar as they um, apply to uh, employability and skills, which again, most often hit Hit women. And the other thing was the National um, Strategy for Economic Transformation, which came out earlier this year, and I'm still really just so cross about. Um, they talk about a national strategy for economic transformation from the Scottish Government that relies on entrepreneurship, including as a means of addressing child poverty. But we cannot have transformation without care, and care being at the centre of our economic policy. Um, and I'll stop on that. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another Scottish Independence podcast. And you can check out our website, podcasts.independencelive.net, to see all our previous episodes and our very popular blog.